I forgot to introduce myself, by the way. My name is Riley. I'm the pastor of the church, and it's a joy to be here. It's a joy to open God's Word before you today. We are in Romans chapter 2. We're working our way through the book of Romans, section by section by section. Uh, and if you'd like a title for today's message, it's called The Heart of the Matter. The Heart of the Matter. And we've been seeing that Paul is trying to explain to the uh, Roman church the great news of the gospel that we've sung about so beautifully today and celebrated already. Uh, and he told them how great the gospel is, that by believing in Christ, we receive the very righteousness of God in chapter 1, verse 16. And then from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is trying to show us all and show the Romans that there's no other way of salvation. There's no other way of getting into heaven other than through Jesus Christ. He shows that the Gentile pagan world, the people that didn't know God through the Old Testament, that they're under God's judgment. And then in chapter 2, the last time, a couple of times we were together, we saw that even moralistic people, well, unless you're perfect, you're not going to make it either. And even Jewish people who have the law and who have you know, the, the prophets and have all the resources, that's also not good enough as well. And Paul wants to go at great pains to make this point. And so again, we have another passage which is going to touch on many of the themes that we've already touched on. But this is God's holy word. And God repeats things because humans don't get them. And if there's one thing that's true about humans and just look all around the world and even in our church and outside the church is that as humans, we trust in what we do more than what God does. We're religious by nature. We love to be the ones that do it. We write how it's meant to be done. We are the ones that figure it out. And even though God has told us, that's the default nature of the human heart. And so we have another message again, which is going to get to, what's it? The heart of the matter. There we go. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a, blind, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who have whore idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision in, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps or uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. 
His praise is not from man, but from God. Let us pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Such a radical shift is Jesus' teaching, at least to the mind of a human, that even the most astute teachers of the law in Jesus' time didn't understand, couldn't comprehend what he was actually going on about. Even though Jesus was only making connections from the Old Testament and actually fulfilling it, it was so disjunctive to the way that they viewed the world that they couldn't get it, even when Jesus told them. One story is uh, late at night, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee uh, named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he wants to search out and figure out who this Jesus is. You may know the story. He comes at night, obviously, because he doesn't want to be seen coming during the day. I believe he's a searcher. He's a seeker. He, he, he knows that there's something about Jesus, but doesn't quite get it because it doesn't fit his mold. And so he asks Jesus, you know, you, you seem to be a teacher, come from God. And then Jesus, right out of the gate, just hits him with a total paradigm shift. Uh, John chapter 3, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That wasn't what Nicodemus didn't ask a question, but Jesus just went straight there. Then Nicodemus replies in verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? Fair question. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? That's gross. Uh, and be born? Verse 5, Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which, born, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, what Jesus is teaching there, we all know if you've been in church for a long time, but the heart of the matter is that we all need new hearts. The heart of the matter is that we all need new hearts. And to help the, the, the Jewish people in Paul's day and the religious people in our day, we have verses 17 to 29 in Romans chapter 2 to ensure that we get this message into our hearts, into our minds. Paul is going to dismantle two key Jewish crutches that they were tempted to lean on as forms of their own self-salvation. The law and circumcision. And they thought by having these two crutches, even though they weren't perfect, they would at least limp their way into the kingdom of God, if not make a full-on run. And Paul wants to show, kick them out (laughs) in love, not in cruelty, to show that they've got no legs to stand on and that they need a totally different new way. But he's not just speaking to Jews, as I've said. We're all prone to crutch and lean on our human efforts or our church attendance or our baptism as a kid or you know, our gifting or, or even we might lean on thinking, well, maybe I'm not a Christian because I've sinned. And we think so much about what we're doing that this passage is still for us today. So we're going to look at three things, three simple words, three points, law, circumcision, heart, law, circumcision and heart. Let's look firstly at the law. 
Uh, The context that Paul talks about in point number one under the law here is that in chapter 2, verse 13, he's making a very similar point. If you look back, he says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, that's a real problem. It's not just having the law. It's not just knowing God's rules and God's ways that will make you right in God's sight. It's actually doing them and obeying them. But it's only if you have a very low view of God's law that you think you've obeyed it. If you think you've obeyed God's law and you're going to be sweet with God based on your performance, you have no idea about God's actual standard. It's complete, pure, unrelenting, beautiful, majestical holiness. That's the standard. And so Paul wants to return after making a brief segue in verses 14 to 16 to reinforce this point, to make sure that people get it. Look at verse 17 through 18. He kind of lists Jewish privilege, these kind of crutches, these things that they thought they had. And they did have. These were good things. But look at how he compiles them and lists them up. Uh, If you call yourself a Jew, that means you're of the tribe of Judah, a real spiritual Israelite. You call yourself a Jew, you're part of God's special people. Number two, rely on the law. That means you've got this special revelation, you know, like the Gentiles. They didn't have God's law. They didn't know what God wanted, God didn't want, but we have the law. Number three, you boast in God. And number four... And know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. So this was sort of like the the chest beating things that the Jewish people would have been like, this is us. This is our people. Uh, You know, in a similar way, sort of like, without, I'm not trying to denigrate Americans, but the way they talk about their constitution and and their pride of who they are as a people. It's like, we're American, democracy, representation, you know, all that type of stuff. That's their thing that they boast about. And the Jews were a bit like that. Uh, And they had every reason to, in a sense. They were God's special chosen people. And then he kind of then turns it a little bit and looks at four kind of proudful distinctions, prideful distinctions they made between them and the Gentile world. Look at verse 19. If you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish... A teacher of children. Uh, so they, they saw themselves as a cut above the Gentile world. They know God's law. Here's these guys walking in darkness. We've got the light. Here are these children. They're, they're so, you know, pathetic and they don't know anything. And here we are, mature. And, you know, they, they're, you know there's kindergarten. We're PhD. That's, that's how they viewed the world. Now, we might not boast in these things necessarily today, but... Even as Christians, I think we can have a similar tendency, especially at the moment as we get further and further from, you know, a a Christian society. I find us saying things like this more and more. I can't believe our culture and what they think about this. I can't believe how far away it's going from God. Look at how crazy things are. If only they did what the Bible said. And, and, And those things may be true. But we've got to be careful that we don't become proud in our distinction because exactly what Paul does next is he turns the tables on them. And he shows that they aren't the ones that actually complete the law. Uh, But before we go there, I just want to step into the Jewish world a little bit more and just remind us of 
Why do they even think like this? Um, well, th- they are the special chosen people of God. God alone made a covenant with the Jewish people. And he saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And then he appeared to them on a mountain and gave them a law in fire and thunder and lightning and actually made a covenant with them and became their God and they became his people. And he committed himself to them and them alone. So th- they do have this special place. And the point of their specialness, though, was not to separate themselves from the world and be like, well, you stay over there, we're over here. They were actually meant to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49.6. They were meant to be teachers, like they say they are in this passage, to bring people in, not to cast them out. And if you read Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says this through Moses. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. This is Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 to 8. And this is re-establishing the covenant. Um, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Uh, So they were meant to be like this. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So they were meant to know it, love it, live it, and teach it, and welcome people into the good way of God. But instead, verse 21 to 22 You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And what he's trying to say is that Jews, you've got to practice what you preach. We we know that. We hate hypocrisy. We hate people putting themselves up when they're not all that. Well, it was the same in this time as well. And the reality was that what Paul's saying is that you don't practice what you preach. Even people that have the law of God disobey the law. And therefore, the result, verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So what you thought was a really great part about your life and your story and your identity is actually dishonoring God because you don't live up to the, to the task. And then verse 24, not only do they not live up to it themselves, they are a negative influence on the world. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, turning to the Christian church, Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. You are to be the light before the nations. Yet how often the church has become just like Israel, committing such deeds of evil and perpetrating injustice in the world, such that unbelievers, instead of praising God because they see the work of the church, they curse God and blaspheme him because of Christians. And instead of us looking down upon these, you know, Jewish people in the time, I think it ought to actually make us reflect 
and ask, are we a bit more like them than we would like to imagine? How are you living your life in this world? You who know the Bible, who study the Bible each week, who go to life group and read books. Speaking to myself when I say you, not separating, I'm included. How righteous and joyful and generous and loving and kind and no gossip, no slander, no tax evasion, no nothing. What about when you drive? What, what are you representing to the world while you're out there? How many of us may give a bad name to God by our unlawful living? It's worth, rather than looking at how bad these people were, look at your own self and wonder, is there any way that I'm living right now that may cause people to blaspheme God because of what I'm doing? Are you embarrassed in your workplace to tell people you're a Christian because actually how you live at work is not at all how you're meant to be living? And Paul is trying to say, if you rely on your performance and this law as a badge of merit, I go to church, I know the Bible, I'm a moral person, I'm of Jewish heritage, I have the law, but you do not obey it perfectly, will you actually just dishonor God and you bring shame upon God amongst the people. And so it's of no merit to you at all. So the first thing he tries to do to knock out the crutch is so you can't lean on the law for your salvation unless you obey it completely. He's not done though. He wants to dismantle something else and that leads us to number two. So number one, law. Number two, circumcision. In verse 25, he brings up sort of an, an implied objection. If you look at verse 25, um, he starts to talk about circumcision. And you can imagine the Jews, after hearing all this, like, the law, the law, it doesn't help. You know, they're like, but, and you're saying we're going to be judged? Are you saying we're going to be just like those Gentiles, those uncircumcised Gentiles, that we too might be under the judgment of God? Because in Paul's day, there was a saying going around where the Jews genuinely believed if you were a circumcised Jewish person, there's no way you could ever go to hell. There was no judgment for you. You get a free pass. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, we don't talk about circumcision a lot. It's a bit of a you know, private matter. Uh, but in the Jewish time, when God appeared to Abraham, uh, he promised him, he was this Gentile person, pagan guy, promised him that if you follow me, I will make you a, a great nation and I will give you a land and you'll be a blessing to the earth. And as a sign that you're my people, be circumcised and circumcise all the people of your people. And then through the law, all Jewish male-borns were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And it was a visible sign, like wearing a wedding ring, that you connected to someone else. It was a sign that said, we're a people set apart. It's a sign that God has made a covenant with us, that God is uniquely for us. And so it became this badge of honour. We are the circumcised ones. It you know, wouldn't really pass today. I wouldn't go out and shout about that. But they were, they were relying on that. And they had no category that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would judge his covenant people. That they would go to Gehenna and be judged for their sins. But Paul's saying here, yeah, circumcision is really good if you obey the law. 
And if you read the Old Testament, you will see time and time and time and time again that the, the regulation of the covenant, even though God is committed to his people, it comes with regulations that they must follow him and obey him and repent when they don't. But if you go on living in sin, your circumcision is of no value. It's like having a visa. Uh, many of you have come here on visas. Uh, you can be granted a visa, and that's all well and good. But if you break the terms of your visa, you can walk around with your visa all you want. You can have it signed. You can have it in your passport. But if you do something that validates or nullifies your visa, and it's actually on your record, when you go to show your visa, it will have no value and no worth because you've broken it. That's what Paul's saying to the Jewish people. And that's what he's saying to anyone here who's trusting in your performance before God. If you think you're going to get to heaven and say, well, I was baptized in the Church of England, or I was baptized a Roman Catholic, or my family was believers, or I tried really hard, or I was generally a morally good person, God's going to say, that's invalid. It's of no benefit to you. You'll be judged for what you have done, Romans 2, 12 to 16. And so repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, uh, there's this call upon the people of God who are circumcised to do something else, to circumcise their hearts. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to the people and says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So even in all Paul is doing is pulling out an Old Testament principle that unless you cut your heart away and remove your stubbornness and come to the Lord in humility and repentance, you will, ex you will experience the wrath of God's judgment. But then he goes on and makes it even worse. Look at 26 and 27 of chapter 2. So if a man who is uncircumcised, that's a Roman or a Gentile, and he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So now he's using sort of like a, a shocking rhetorical device and saying, you know those Romans who you think are, are, are just Gentile dogs and pathetic and gross. Well, if they keep the law, if they were like a law keeper, then they would be an uncircumcised per a circumcised person and you'd be uncircumcised. They'd be like a covenant person and you'd be an uncovenant person. Now, I think Paul here is talking about a hypothetical case. I don't think it's possible for any Roman or Gentile or any of us to actually obey the law and be, become part of the covenant through law abiding um, and, but he, he's, he's trying to shock them and show them it doesn't count. It doesn't help. And then verse 27, he makes it even worse. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Uh, so the Jewish people in the day thought that in the end times, they would be there with God and God would be judging the nations and they would be there on God's side, judging the nations with God. And Paul's saying, well, actually what will happen is the Gentiles who you thought were over here, well, they're actually with God and they'll be judging you and you'll be being judged by these Gentile people that you look down upon. And so he's trying to, he's really trying to just slap them about and wake them up and help them realize it doesn't help, it won't count. And I resonate with Paul because 
And you probably do too. If you know people that are trusting in their religion, they're trusting in their baptism, their church attendance or some other religious form, and they think, I'm going to be sweet with God. And you just want to, no, you will not. It's not possible. There's no way. Paul can't make it any clearer because he loves them. He doesn't want his kinsmen to be under the judgment of God. He doesn't want any Roman or pagan or any of you here today to think, I'll be sweet with God. So here's the argument in full. Romans 2.13, only those who keep the law will be justified. Romans, that's the principle. The problem, Romans 3.9, which we'll get to it, is what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Jew and Gentile, we're all under the power of sin, the reign of sin. And the prospect, what's that going to be? Verse 20 of chapter 3. By the works of the Lord, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so the result will be no one will be able to stand before God. That's what Paul's arguing. That's what he's trying to get through to us. So what's the solution? Well, that leads us to point three, heart. And I, and I, want, I, know, I know many of us know this, but I want you to enter into the drama of this story, to, to think again, perhaps before you were a Christian or when you came to understand how God actually saves people and enter into the drama again of what it would have been like for these Jewish people who were like Nicodemus thinking, but I'm, we've got the law and we're the covenant people and we're the circumcised ones and all the promises are for us and yet you're saying that we need to do something different, Jesus? Well, point three, heart. Look at verse 28 to 29. For no one who is a Jew, who is one, who is merely one outwardly, sorry, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, that's the law. And his praise is not from man, but from God. The heart of the matter is that we all need new hearts. That's the fundamental teaching of Christ and Christianity. The heart of the matter, if you want to get cut through it all, is that every single human being on earth needs a new heart, with no exceptions. You can be born outwardly as a Jew, have all the markings, have all the clothing, all the dress, all the laws, all the separation. You can be born into an Anglian, a Catholic, or whatever, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, whatever you want. You can have it all on the outward, but it counts for naught unless you have it on the inside. Because what is the law? What was God getting at when he separated his people? He wasn't asking for law-abiding citizens. He wants a people that love him. That's why when we summarize the law and and Moses summarized it in Deuteronomy 6 and Jesus in Matthew 22, what is it? You shall love the Lord your God. That's the greatest commandment. It's not obedience. That comes with it. It's 
love. Loving God. Loving our triune God. Loving Him. Knowing Him. Being friends with Him. You see, covenants in the Old Testament are not contracts. Covenants are relational. They're not um, you know, thing-oriented. And so contracts, you, you sign a contract with someone saying, I've got a 1,000 apples, you've got $100, we'll sell it. If I bring my 1,000 apples, you bring your $100, boom, we're done. We both get what we want, deed is done. That's a contract. A covenant is the greater party comes to the lesser party and says, I want a relationship with you. You have nothing to offer, I have everything to give. You join with me, you're my friend, you're on my team, and I'll be for you as your God. And what I require of you is loyalty and devotion and love. And that is what God has done with his people. So the question for you this morning to figure out, are you in God's covenant? Are you in relationship with God? The fundamental question is, do you love him? Not do you believe in him? Guess who believes in him? Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. The Mormons believe in God. The Muslims believe in God. The Hindus believe in God. Some Buddhists in different parts believe in God. Others believe in general transcendental principles. It's not do you believe in him. It's not even do you try to live for him. Lots of people try and live for God. Try really, 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 really hard to live for God. Live for God way better than you ever lived for God. The question is, do you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Because true religion is inward. It's of the heart first. It's not the external show. It comes from in to out. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher in the 19th century, had a great explanation of the difference between the religious outward mindset and the inward heart mindset. And some of you might have read it recently because we shared it in life groups, but I want to share the story. Charles Spurgeon said this, Once upon a time there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if I give the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bought, bred, or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. <laughs> and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You see, the difference between religion and gospel, the way of Christ and the way of religion, is that we do things for God because we love God. It comes from inward to outward. We already love Him, so we're like, oh, what can I do? The religious mindset says, I need things from God. I'll do things for Him to get things from Him, but I don't want Him. 
I want the things he can give. But the reality is that this type of true religion is supernaturally impossible. You can't produce love for God on your own. That's what Paul is trying to say in this text. Look at it. Let's work it again. A Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision is a matter of the heart. How does that happen? Look, it's not by trying hard. It's not by being born into it. It's not by doing the right things. By the Spirit. That is, by the Holy Spirit. Not by the letter. Not by having or receiving the law, but having the external work of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, coming into your heart and making you born again. You see, you can't make yourself love God. You can't follow him. He has to come to you first and turn you inside out and come to you by his Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of regeneration, that we were generated once through our parents, but we have to be regenerated. We have to be born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. No one can enter the kingdom of God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born Again, and how are you born again? What did Jesus say? Not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. For that which is of flesh, which is everyone who's born, you're of flesh by nature, is flesh. But that which is of Spirit is Spirit. Now, this was not novel. This was, Jesus is talking about what was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. And this is glorious. This is what we are in. We're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. We're no longer under the law. We are in Christ under a new covenant. God has made a new relationship with his people and it's characterized by a different set of requirements and a different consequences. Look at Jeremiah 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband. Remember, sin is not about breaking rules, it's breaking relationship. That's why Israel so often called a prostitute or a whore. God calls it that. Because sin is breaking relationship with your covenant head. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, verse 33, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Isn't this glorious? And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, oh, you should know the Lord. For they, my covenant people, my regenerate people, will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Friends, we are in this covenant. This is how we get to heaven. We come to heaven through Jesus Christ who laid down his life and perfectly completed the law so that God can forgive us of all of our sins. And then he enters our heart, makes us born again. And then we have his law written on our heart through the Holy Spirit so that we love him and we want to live for him. And we're set free and we have this glorious new life as a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's how we get to heaven. You see, circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, but now we have a new sign. What is it? Baptism. 
That's why baptism only makes sense to baptize believers. Because the new covenant is different to the old covenant. In the old covenant, you were circumcised on the eighth day, whether you believed or not, you were eight, years, eight days old. You didn't know, right? And then you would either be a true Jew or one who is just external. But the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be made up of people who are only born again. Yes, you can visit if you're not yet a Christian, but the church of Jesus Christ is made up of born-again covenant members. And so baptism is the new circumcision, which says you are set apart as God's people. You have died to your sin. You've rised to new life in Christ. If you're a Christian here today and you've never been baptized as a believer, can I encourage you, be baptized as a believer, as a sign that you've entered into this new covenant. We can talk more about that if you'd like. Baptism won't save you, but it's a sign of what God has done on the inside and what God has done on the cross. And the amazing reality of what Christ has done is that on that cross... All the legal demands of the law that stood over the Jewish people and all the righteousness of holiness of God that stands over all people over the earth was paid for by Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death. So that Colossians 2 tells us in verse 13, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ today for the first time, here's what happens. All of your debt is released. I don't know if you have actual physical debt today. Perhaps you have a home loan or a car loan or a credit card or perhaps you owe people money, you have business loans. Perhaps you've got debt collectors actually coming for you. It's a horrible feeling, I would imagine. It's a terrible feeling to know you owe and you owe and you owe. How much greater must your feeling be if you realize right now that you owe to God your very life and you can never pay it back? But if you come to Christ right now, The promise of the new covenant is your debt will be cancelled, paid in full by the blood of Christ. So friends, let me ask, are you inwardly a true follower of Jesus Christ? Are you actually born again? Or are you just of the flesh? George Whitfield, who was a famous preacher in around the same time as Charles Spurgeon, would preach constantly on this theme, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. And a lady once asked George Whitfield why he so often on preaching on these words, you must be born again. And Whitfield replied, because madam, you must. If you don't love God from your heart and you haven't come to Jesus Christ, you are not born again. You will stand before God on judgment day and you will have to account for all of your sin and there will be a day of great wrath and vengeance. And I solemnly warn you and plead with you, 
Come to Christ today and receive the second birth. Be welcomed into his covenant community and be one of his very own children. And you will experience something like you've never experienced before. All those things that seem so hard and impossible will suddenly have a a desire about them. You'll want to follow God. You'll want to give. You'll want to live for him because he saved you and loved you. You can talk to Christians around you who are here today and ask them, what's it like being born again? Ask someone that. If you're not yet a Christian, ask someone and they'll tell you, it's not, doesn't make your life perfect, but oh, it is so much better to be friends with God and to know Him and to live with Him and to have His law written in your heart. And if you are born again, if you are a true believer in Christ, may this message just encourage you of the reality of what God has already done for you. Don't try and add to it. Don't be worried that it's going to be taken away. It's not. If the Holy Spirit comes into your life and makes you born again and cancels all your sin by Jesus' death on the cross, you can't change that. You're not good enough. You can rest in it and then live in the good of it. Don't try and lean on your works or or any pedigree but lean wholly upon the cross and live in the freedom and the goodness of what Jesus has done for you. That's what Paul is trying to do for us today. Leaning on the law won't save you. Trusting in circumcision or any other religious rite or heritage won't save you. The heart of the matter is that we all need new hearts. And Jesus gave us one more covenant sign. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And he poured wine and said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. And we're going to share in that supper now. I thought it would be an appropriate time to do that. And as you take the bread and and have this little cup of juice, may it remind you that you are in covenant friendship with God and you are born again and nothing can take that away. And may it preach to you the gospel again this morning and may it set you free from your doubt and your condemnation and your sin. But if you're not yet a Christian, don't take the bread and the wine. It's not for you. It's a meal only for those who are friends with God through Christ. And so as you stand there empty-handed, May that be a sign to you that you are empty before Christ. You are empty before God and you'll have nothing. You'll have nothing to say on that final day. And perhaps consider right now, this very moment, if you want to become a Christian and receive fullness of life, fullness of forgiveness forevermore. Let's take a moment now to reflect on this sermon and these words and all that I said as the stewards hand out uh, the bread and the juice. Romans 3:19 Now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for you. Eat in remembrance of him. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and as a sign of the new covenant. Take and drink this in remembrance of that happy truth. Almighty God, I pray and ask that you would make this bread and wine to feed our hearts in faith. Oh Lord, may it remind us of our second birth that we have become Jews inwardly, that we are now your people, sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, that we are your beloved people, your treasured possession on all the earth. Lord, may it confirm to us when we're doubtful, when we feel laden and heavy with sin, it's been paid on the cross. When we feel we have no power, May it remind us we are born again. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to bring us new life. And now, Lord, let us live in the good of that new life. May we live like we're born again, O Lord. May we live in the freedom that you purchased for us on the cross. Freedom not to go back to sin, but freedom to live righteously, to love your law and your words as a pathway to joy and happiness. And for any Lord here who are unconverted, unregenerate, not born again, outside the covenant, only of the flesh, in your Holy Spirit, by your grace, would you now call them, O Lord, out of darkness and into light? We love you, Lord, and we thank you. How can we thank you enough for sending your Son, Jesus Christ? And in his name we pray. Amen.